Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan. So here we are. It is April the 20th. <laughs> it seems to be. It's been a while. How you been? It has been a while. Uh, it's one of our longer breaks. You know, we got to 50 episodes, which we didn't even really celebrate. And then that was it. Maybe, maybe that was the plan was just to do 50 and call, call, call it a day. Wrap it on the, on the podcast. Uh, no, there's the idea of kind of unceremoniously just one day we're here and the next. <laughs> yeah, it'll be like it'll be like uh, you know, Will Hunting. You know, when Ben Affleck's character is like, "Yo, I just want to knock out. every day. I walk up to your door, and I hope you're not there. And then one day you're just not going to be there." Uh, that's, I'm sure, all our listeners are thinking the same thing. <laughs> uh, but what's going on? I haven't even really talked to you. Like, oftentimes during when we have a. a break of a week or even two weeks it's you know we're just like missing each other but i haven't even really talked to you what's going on when you update me update everyone about how what's going on in your life these days yeah man it's um we're like doing busy adult things i feel like i'm uh in the midst of a, a home renovation wow. um uh, for for anybody who tunes into our instagram channel you may notice I have a little mini kitchen behind me now, which used to be in a kitchen kitchen and now is in my spare bedroom, which is also my office and now also just like a dumping ground for things that no longer have a home uh, while this renovation is underway. And uh, yeah, learn, learning a lot about home things that I I just always, that was always the domain of my parents. And I just... Yeah very different world now that I live in. I don't quite know how I got here. <laughs> how about you? Yeah. I haven't seen you since your birthday. I know. Yeah. Happy birthday to me. Your birthday is coming up in, in a week. Yeah. 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 So we're both, we're both April birthdays. We surround ourselves with people that are April birthdays. Um, I had the chance and I briefly, I sent you a picture of this, but I had the chance to talk to Doug, Doug Jones uh, a couple of weeks ago who People don't know he was the former senator from Alabama and also more recently in the news as uh, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson's, like, quote unquote, Sherpa um, through the confirmation process. So I got to chat with him, which was really interesting. And um, so that's probably the, the coolest thing that's happened to me in the last couple of weeks. So I, I didn't know that. What does that um, what does that entail, Sherpa, someone through a confirmation hearing? Good question. So my first question to him, and I, I think I sent you a picture. There were like six of us in this meeting with Doug Jones. It was like an incredible opportunity. Uh, and so my first question to him was like, what's the need for a Sherpa? So every Supreme Court nominee now gets a Sherpa. And for people like don't know, like the term comes from where would say, where would you say Sherpa is like originally from? Nepal, probably Nepal. bringing the okay. folks up Mount Everest. Sure. Okay. I think that's, I didn't want to misspeak and say like 
you know, Myanmar, India, or I was like, it's Nepal. So thank you for that. I, where I think that's the perfect analogy because Sherpas like help people get over that like massive climb and Sherpas in this situation are helping the justices navigate the confirmation process. So anyway, my first question to him was like, what's the need for a Sherpa in general? Like Ketanji Brown Jackson, Harvard grad, Harvard law. She's been in the DC circuit courts, then the DC court of appeals. Like this is a woman that has been through the confirmation process twice already and is certainly both intelligent and personable enough to kind of like deal with this process on her own. It that's kind of like, that was my thought from the outside. And he was like, no, not just Katanji Brown, like every justice needs this, this person to like help them out. And so he was saying that his main job through the process was to like uh, kind of facilitate relationships. So Doug Jones was just in the Senate up until two years ago. And so he said, he still has tons of relationships within the Senate, of course, not only on the Democratic side, but uh, many Republicans that he worked with. Uh, he was a, a moderate Democrat. So he has, like he said, a lot of really good relationships. So he was like, particularly with some of the Republicans, actually, where we knew that she might be getting a frostier meeting. It was nice that like I, I could walk in, kind of do the pleasantries, you know, talk to Mike Lee, the senator from Utah, and just kind of reminisce about all the times we had in the Senate and this and that. And then you sit down and it kind of like, it, it like defrosts things, I guess, for a better word, or like, um, like lowers kind of like the, the temperature in the room, that same, same thing. And, and so it's more just like, all right, then at that point, everyone's a little more relaxed. It's not as adversarial. and We can just have a conversation. Um, and then he obviously, having been on the other side of confirmation hearings as a senator, is talking to her about like, you know, what types of research are like the opposition teams doing? What types of um, questions should she expect? They like moot court all of her questions. So like she's being prepared like by a whole team where everybody's playing a different senator. People are playing Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and Marsha Blackburn. And like, these are the questions we think they're going to ask. And like, so they're preparing all that. They're kind of workshopping her answers. So it was like, I guess like it makes sense. But I was like, man, that's like, it's a lot of work that kind of goes in behind the scenes when you just think that, you know, Biden nominates her and you're just, you look at, you know, from the outside, we look at her resume and we're like, oh, she seems pretty qualified, you know, but she has to do so much work to kind of get through this center confirmation process. And so it's, it's often beyond a lot of judges and she was maybe more equipped because she had been through these recently, but some of the other judges, like Amy Coney Barrett wasn't a judge for an incredibly long time. Like sometimes you, you are plucking, like Elena Kagan was a, like a Harvard law professor. You know what I mean? Like she had really no experience doing stuff like that. So when you're looking at some of these people that, um, you know, all of them probably need help to, to varying degrees, but yeah, it was, it was really interesting to kind of behind the scenes, look at the process. I guess the follow would be, did they prepare her for questions like are babies racist or uh, can you define a woman? <laughs> so, no, that we that was kind of a follow up question, and they were like, they were like every single question we we had kind of mooted, we had prepared it for, except Marsha Blackburn's define a woman question. They were like, we did not see that one coming. Uh, and and like he was kind of saying, and we were asking questions because for anybody who tuned into this, like you know, it's clearly, and, and I you know, for our last episode, I complained about this, how we had, you know, RBG was confirmed 96 to three and Scalia was 98, zero and Roberts was like 76, 25 or something like that. And it's like, uh, these people just would not get those type of votes today. And so someone else had asked, like, you know, is this, a lot of people have said this now, but is like the 
the process is the system just broken at this point where like no one no one's even giving a chance to these justices that are nominated by presidents of a, an opposing party and he was saying that he doesn't feel like the process is broken he feels like the people are broken that like the process is actually still a good one and i actually it was really interesting because to me i was kind of like this this whole process is just like completely flawed at this point like whether it was Ketanji Brown Jackson only getting three Republican votes or Amy Coney Barrett getting no Democratic votes. It's just like these people, I think to most mainstream people seem very qualified for these positions. Are there other people that are equally or more qualified? Yeah, probably. But like, that doesn't mean these people aren't qualified. But anyway, his kind of point was that like, it's, it's a people problem. It's not a process problem, which I like as, as an institutionalist, I actually really respect and was kind of glad to hear him say that he's just like, he was kind of funny. I was laughing to myself because he was like, you know, the primary process is really broken. <laughs> he was like, then we get these people up there. They're just like grandstanding to their bases who like in, we know that none of them are going to support this judge. And so the senators have no, no reason to try to like act in their role. They're just trying to appeal to either their home base for reelection or potentially for a higher office, like you know, the presidency. And it's become a self-serving thing as opposed to like, let's vet this person and see if she is, you know, has the mental emotional qualifications to sit on the court, which is the, the intent of the process. Yeah. I think it's always that in and of itself is always an interesting question because and we've, I think we've talked about this in a number of different areas where like it's prior precedent or it's just kind of the way things are done that we sort of feel like that is codified in our system. But then when you have people who want to like go to the rules and to like the letter of the rules, you know, what Ted Cruz is doing in these confirmation hearings is like, it's not, it's not out of bounds. It's just, it's completely counter to like the point of the process. Um, And so, yeah, that, that. And like the, the, um, it's not, not the letter, like the spirit of the law. Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. What he's doing is antithetical to the spirit of the process. Right. But it's, I think it's interesting just in the, in the broader context of like how much of our system relies on people sort of intuitively having an understanding of, you know, what are we supposed to be doing here versus what are we allowed to do here? And people are taking huge liberties. I mean, even like, even in kind of the electoral college confirmation process, right? Like we saw a number of sort of legal loopholes that allowed for questions that should have never been there. Cause it's completely, as you said, antithetical to like the, what we're trying to achieve, like, how, you know, how we, how we do things. hundred percent. And I think Trump obviously exacerbated or exposed it on the highest level, right. With some of his behavior where it, it exposed like how fragile, like you were saying in electoral cone vote, like how fragile democracy really is. Right. And, and uh, we were just kind of like, it hasn't been a problem for 150 years because people just like didn't challenge it, but then someone decided to push on it a little bit. And it was like, Oh, like this is, this isn't really that sturdy. You know what I mean? Like there's a, there's a lot of, this is like really held up by people just kind of following norms that, that we just like expect to follow. But when people don't follow those norms, it gets kind of dangerous pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, (laughs) we got, 
a little bit sidetracked here, but we, we do have some other things to talk about. What are we, uh, what are we talking about this week? Yeah. Sorry. I thought that was just like, how often do you get a chance to talk to like, it's probably maybe the only chance in my life I'm going to get a chance to talk to someone that's like sherpering someone through a Supreme court nomination. So I wanted to talk about talk that out with you. That's what I say. I haven't, I haven't talked to you at all. This is just a catch up conversation for us. Uh, and that's that's kind of what this episode is going to be. There's a bunch of stuff that has happened in the news. We are not going to be able to cover it all. We are not going to be able to cover even what we do cover in depth. But there are a few things that we that have come up over the past few weeks that we wanted to talk about. Uh, we want to talk about the union unionization efforts um, with the Amazon branch in in New York uh, that was you know potentially significant. Uh, and so we'll, we'll discuss that briefly. Um, We'll we'll talk about Title 42 and immigration seems to be back in the news over the past couple of weeks. And we'll also talk about some some updates on on what's happening in in Ukraine. So uh, a a few things we'll we'll talk about probably fairly briefly, but at least wanted to get some of those conversations that we haven't been able to have out there. Um, Before we get into all that, Ricky, uh, this podcast, as everyone I hope knows, hope remembers, is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. Uh, they've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. I was actually recently over in Southie at my place over there and uh, was looking at my bar that those guys built. And I was like, oh, I missed that. So I was just like running my hand over it. Was, it was made of like this reclaimed like wood from other projects. The top of it is a door. And uh, so it's like, it, it was exactly how they describe it. It was a high-end handcrafted custom. Uh, and that was a really cool thing. So again, as always, if people are interested in, in a piece of furniture, those are the guys to go to go check them out. Um, all right. Well, when we come back, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll hop right into it. All right. So I wanted to start this week or, you know, with something I had flagged for you, um, <laughs> I guess a couple of weeks ago now, I think it was the beginning of April that this um, happened. So a Amazon factory in or warehouse distribution center in Staten Island, New York, uh, voted to unionize um, in early April. And this was sort of the first kind of Amazon um campus to actually uh sort of approve a union um they did so by i think something like 10 percent um of the vote it's a small like 5,000 ish person um campus but still 10 percent is is a pretty wide margin um and they did so following a couple of union drives in i want to say like alabama or georgia both which did not uh turn up successful um but i think it's a really interesting moment um because of sort of the recent decline in sort of i I mean in unionization in kind of the strength of unions um particularly at these kind of factory type of places i think everyone is sort of familiar with the police union or maybe a teacher's union um and other areas where unions still have like a lot of strength and sway but in kind of the factory and sort of um this kind of a production capacity um these kind of unions labor unions have been 
on the down, I'd say over the last like 20, 30 years. And there are definitely a number of reasons for that. And I don't, would not claim to be an expert on, on sort of all of the reasons. Um, but yeah, this feels kind of like a, a little bit of a momentous swing for the little guy against, you know, arguably the largest corporation in the world right now. Um, curious what your like early thoughts, I have some other feelings about it, but yeah, curious what your, your early thoughts on, on this was or on unions in general. It's something we don't talk yeah. about too often. All right. All right. So thanks for that. Thanks for opening up like that because I'm not totally sure how I feel about unions. And I think maybe this is something we should dedicate a longer episode to and get some people that know far more than me or us about unions, because like you said, my experience in my knowledge tends to revolve around more of like the public sector unions, like teachers, like firefighters, like police. Those are the unions that I hear about most often. The unions that I think are, as you mentioned, still some of, if not the most powerful unions in the country. But I think those are different than private unions. And I'm not totally sure exactly how they're different, but I think I should feel differently about them. <laughs> and uh, so that's why I want to like dive into that a little bit more, but I, I want to kind of get at what you were saying about union membership in the United States. So as you mentioned, union membership in the United States has been on the decline really for like 70 years. Um, and it has been consistently on the decline since 1983. So in 1983, 20% of private sector workers in the United States were part of a union. And last year, only 10% were. So it's been cut in half over these past 40 years. But uh, union private sector unions were at a height post-World War II. And so if we're looking like in the 50s, there were 35% of Americans were part of unions. And that declined gradually throughout like the 50s, 60s, 70s, but it was still pretty consistently above 20, 25%. And then starting in the early 1980s, it has just dropped where it's, it's become halved of what it was since the early 1980s. And as you mentioned, there are a lot of factors for that. Um, and I think I probably don't know enough to talk about all of them, but there's definitely been at least, there were some, whether it's, globalization or decentralization or um, tax cuts or deregulation or, uh, you know, some explicit like union busting efforts, whether at the governmental level or the private level, um, or even just kind of a change in mindset around unions where it, it feels like, and again, obviously I wasn't living this, but it felt like you, you just kind of joined a union post-World War II. That was a thing that like most private sector workers did. And now it doesn't feel like that at all. And I don't think most people most younger people really think that's an issue because that's just not how we grew up that like unions were a big part of our lives. So there's definitely been a mindset change too. Um, but yeah, so I guess like that's all that to say that this is, you know, potentially this is as many people have said, like the biggest win for labor unions or organized labor in, in decades. And maybe it's just the one win for 5,000 people in Staten Island, New York, or maybe it is portending something bigger but that's obviously remains to be seen. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess maybe we could start by saying that this conversation will probably largely revolve around just perceptions of unions because yeah, neither of us are, are scholars in this area. I think there was like a, 
yeah, a feeling like, you know, the, the big names like the Jimmy Hoffa's and uh, that, that there was sort of corruption in the unions and, you know, all union workers got to pay their union dues, but these guys aren't necessarily like looking out for your best interests and they're just as whatever, uh, you know, corrupt as the, the corporations that they're supposed to be uh, lobbying on your behalf with. But <clears throat> I think it is, you know, the, the idea of a labor union is essentially that as individuals, workers are replaceable, but as a collective, you know, it's a, they have a, a, a kind of a bargaining power um, with the corporate entities that individuals just can't have. Like they can't see sort of how other people are being treated. And so like the idea, I think philosophically behind a union should make a lot of sense to people. But, and then of course it's, you know, it, it kind of gets back to like the, the spirit of the thing versus how does it kind of turn out in practice, right? You're supposed to elect your union leaders and they're supposed to be fighting for each, every individual's benefit. And then unfortunately, you know, some people end up kind of taking advantage of their, their position. Um, it's that like classic, what is it? The Alfred Lord Tennyson, like power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Right. Like it's a, it's a very interesting thing, but I think this particular instance, like Amazon is not the, I mean, you know, many people will look at them as the evil empire for what they're doing sort of to small businesses, but as a, as an employer, especially in recent years, you know, they've really lifted their minimum wage. They provide like academic benefits, um, you know, certainly I don't claim to know anything about the conditions in their warehouses or distribution centers or how like employees are treated. But in general, <clears throat> like on the face of it, they're offering tons of benefits that companies, you know, employing sort of a similar <clears throat> level of people in the past just never did. And so that coupled with sort of the rising um, wages for, for workers everywhere makes this kind of a, an interesting time to see this kind of move. Um, and I'm wondering what you think about like how, or sort of what it says about um, the U S in particular, that like, despite the fact that we have like 3% or, you know, whatever it is, less than 4% unemployment um, that workers still feel either undervalued or, um, as if they're being taken advantage of, because we're not just seeing it at Amazon, right? Like Starbucks in Boston and New York are looking to unionize. I'm sure there'll be other union drives at other Amazon in, <clears throat> at other Amazon factories and warehouses around the country now. And it feels like this could be a tip of the iceberg sort of situation, but it also doesn't really feel like we're in that kind of economic environment where you would see this kind of, you know, rapid uh, escalation into, um, or sort of re-escalation into this like union dominated um, world. Sure. That's an interesting question. <laughs> I have, because you're right, like the immediate economic situation, like if we just look over the last year, if we take a snapshot of the last year, as you mentioned, worker pay is, is rising, unemployment is falling, benefits are rising, and that's been really good for the American worker. Like it's, it's, it's given much more power to the worker, which is why 
we see so many people leaving their jobs, but not out of the labor market because like they are just moving to better jobs because there, there's so much demand for labor right now. We certainly saw this coming out of the pandemic where many small businesses were struggling to, to find people to work, right? Which again, like leads to this because there's such a small supply and such a high demand that leads you know, naturally to like rising wages, rising benefits, which is, you know, of course, it's a, it's a great sign of capitalism. Like that's exactly how capitalism is supposed to work. And this is one of those times where the market is, is really working to the benefit of, of workers. Now, two things. I w- so the first I would say is that during the pandemic, I think a lot of workers felt hung out to dry by their employers uh, and not necessarily high wage workers or white collar workers, but more of the frontline blue collar workers. And I say that particularly in this example, because the person who was organizing the labor unionization efforts in the Amazon warehouse had actually got fired two years ago because they were protesting the conditions at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. And Amazon was like, you guys got to keep working. You know, we're going to put in place X, Y, Z. But the workers were protesting that they were being forced to continue to work. And so like that he got fired. And that's like why he ended up getting into like the trying to organize and unionize. Um, so I think coming, I think a lot of people that's still fresh in a lot of people's minds of like, look, when push came to shove, my employer was either like, you got to work or you lose your job. And that like at wage work is is great until like you need someone to have your back and when you don't then you realize like well i'm just out here by myself against these huge huge in amazon's case uh, organization so i say i think that's that's one thing that's part of it that's in that's a kind of like in the very recent past in people's minds despite like how good this past year has been for workers and then two i think if you just look in this where we're talking about like trends and this is where like Elizabeth Warren has been like shouting this from the from the rooftop for a long time, and other other people have too. But I think she's one of the main voices. Uh, where like if you look at how much workers are making now compared to what they were making in the eighties, or certainly in like the fifties and sixties, it's it's gotten like smaller. Obviously, like this is in you know relatively speaking, relative to inflation and those sorts of things. So I actually. One other thing I did over these past few weeks is I watched this documentary called uh, Inequality for All. Have you heard of that? I haven't. All right. So it's basically a story by Robert Reich, um, who, have you heard of that guy? I can't say that. Yeah, I'd maybe like heard his name before, but like I didn't, I didn't really know who he was. So he, he served in like three different presidential administrations, including he was the secretary of labor under Bill Clinton. But uh, anyway, the, the, it's kind of revolves around both his life and his work as like an economist. Uh, and it's definitely like super biased. Like if you would actually like eat it up, you should go, you should go watch it. It's like right up your alley. Um, because like continuously he has to be like, I'm not anti-capitalist. I'm not a communist, <laughs> which, you know, is like when you, when you have to say that, uh, but I think his, his point uh, was he brings up like a, a number of statistics in, in that in, in the documentary and he was saying like the average worker in uh 1978 made forty eight thousand dollars in today's dollars and today they're making thirty three thousand dollars um while the average pay of like the top one percent went from four hundred thousand to one point one million and now the 400 richest Americans own more wealth than the bottom 150 million. You know, like, so he, he kind of rattles off all of these statistics. And again, there's many factors that go into this, but I do think workers 
are feeling that their purchasing power is going down. And even if their wages are, it, I, that's another thing now I'm just rambling, but like that is happening right now with inflation skyrocketing continuously month over month is going up that even as workers make more money, their purchasing power isn't necessarily going up any more than that. And so workers have seen both like a long-term decline in their purchasing power and in their overall wages relative to like the economy. And so I think that might not be front of everyone's minds, but it also does make sense why there would be a, a renewed push for unionization. Yeah. And I think it's, it is one of those interesting dynamics that we have in our, you know, very capitalist economy that rising wages are good until everybody gets the rising wages. And then the only way to pay for the rising wages is to increase the cost of goods. And now we're in potentially a a difficult cycle. And I think, you know, over the last 20 years, the, you know, people who are, uh, kind of advocates of increased government spending have been just pointing to our kind of ability to produce our way out of any issues. Um, like you, what keeps the lid on inflation if everybody has more money and everyone can buy more as well. If we can make more things, if we increase the supply, then it doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that the costs of things has to go up. And then obviously what we've seen with um with what what's going on when you rely on international supplies and you know everything even if it's made here still relies you know predominantly on on raw materials that come from all over the place and so the this interconnected system when the supply is no longer a toggle and something that you can increase then increasing wages to attract employment doesn't as you were saying doesn't necessarily benefit anybody um yeah, it's it's very uh I don't know, it's it's a it's a complicated like where you know where to look at what what the beginning of the problem is and like where the solution lies because that is really what you know besides benefits like sick time and uh standard hours or breaks during the day like unions are really they drive for you know a proper appropriation of wages um and that's <laughs> that can be a, a tricky thing in a situation where you have rising inflation um, yeah whatever i think I, that felt like an interesting conversation I me mean, i want to have more of it so let, let's kind of put that on the let's let's table that and maybe we can come back to that in, a, in an upcoming episode with some people that we can really ask some questions to and maybe learn some things <laughs> yeah right exactly um, but I think, it, I mean, it also speaks to like uh, the current climate or the climate that we're in that, you know, we don't have much familiarity with unions and, and how they kind of operate um, and all of the things that they can sort of bring to the table, both good and, and bad. Um, but I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I think this could be a good way to sort of segue into the conversation you, we wanted to have about immigration um, in part, because I think that this is a large, I think you were hinting at it kind of, you know, one of the precipitating factors to sort of the decline in unionization had been increased globalization, but also immigration um, because, you know, who, who are workers that can cross the picket lines, either ones that are not here located in the U S you know, somewhere else that we can transfer our need of labor to or, or immigrant workers, 
you know, legal or, or illegal who will do the same job for less money and, you know, under, um, under the threat of deportation. So this is, I think, a, a topic that, um, that honestly, I don't pay that much attention to, but it popped up, uh, you know, it, it, it kind of continues to rear its, its ugly head. So, uh, why don't you, why don't you kick us off here? And um, I'm curious to hear what uh, yeah, what you've been thinking about. Sure. So now that you were saying that, it's interesting to think about when this has become an issue. This was maybe last a big issue back in 2020. Then before that, it was a big issue in 2018. It was a big issue in 2016. Right. And so like, whether that's a coincidence or not, I would say probably not, but like, these are our election years and this is where, this is where one of the main issues where elections are decided these days. Um, but aside from the fact that it's election year, why, why it was recently in the news is for two reasons. So in March, um, the Customs and Border Protection, CBP, filed that 221,000 immigrants crossed the or tried to cross the southwest border, the border with the United States and Mexico, which is a 22-year high. And so obviously that's one of those things where sets off some alarm bells, but like this is, again, we've talked about this before, that the crisis at the border, a system that's not working, when you have 220,000 people coming in one month and trying to get in, that's that's an issue. And why, the second reason why it was in the news recently is that under Title 42, the United States was able to expel almost all of those immigrants immediately. And so what is Title 42? It comes from uh, 1944 health law, which was intended to prevent the spread of communicable disease. And it was implemented in March of 2020 by the CDC under orders, obviously under the Trump administration at that point, which allowed the you know, Customs and Border Protection to remove migrants who are crossing into the United States without giving them like hearings. So normally under both US law and international treaty, when migrants come to the United States and are appealing for asylum, we need to give them hearings and decide like whether or not they qualify for asylum into the country. Under Title 42, because of the public health emergency, we haven't been forced to do that. And so we can just expel migrants as soon as they come across without giving them any hearings. Now, there was a huge outcry when Trump did this, of course, and this is where like my frustration is because like, you know, the media with all of the, their coverage of like how Trump, the Trump administration was like handling the border and how callous they were being towards migrants. Like, and then, you know, Biden came in and said he would do things differently and then he didn't. So he's been in office now for over a year and hadn't taken away the title 42 designation at all because he also wanted to continue to expel these migrants, but like, he just didn't, like, he didn't have to be the bad guy in this, in this situation. So anyway, there's been huge outcry from progressives and liberals over the past really year being like, look, you said you were going to do things differently. You basically just continued all of the same policies that he had in place before. And so he's been facing a lot of pressure on his left to suspend, rescind the, the Title 42 order. Anyway, a few weeks ago, he comes out and says, starting on May 23rd, we're going to rescind that order. And now he's getting huge blowback from not only Republicans, but like a ton of moderate Democrats, including some like really heavy hitters, uh, including, including Kirsten Sinema, the Democrat from Arizona, uh, including Maggie Hassan. It's like a lot of these Democrats that are now up for re-election here in 2022 in these swing states that are like 
dude, what are you doing? Uh, and so Maggie Hassan from New Hampshire, Raphael Warnock in Georgia, Mark Kelly in Arizona, John Tester in Montana, Mansion and Cinema, of course. But like all of these big names, moderate Democrats have come out and be like, you can't just take away this Title 42. And then, of course, there was hypocrisy where the CDC came out and uh, continued the mask mandates. Obviously, that was just overturned yesterday, but continued the mask mandates on public transportation while the administration was simultaneously being like, oh, the, the public health crisis is over at the border, but it's continuing for everybody here on public transportation. So uh, there's a lot of things that have been in the news with immigration lately. You can take it whatever direction you want. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, where to begin? I I mean, I think I'd, I'll say I'll, I love the way that you started this off in that we hear about this every two years. And it, I don't think it is a coincidence because I, I mean, it, to me, it, it's, it is, it's a manufactured crisis. Like I, I do, uh, there's no denying that there's an, an uptick in the amount of people trying to cross the Southern border. And there is sort of no, um, there's also no denying that, you know, this was a measure put in place early on in the pandemic. And, you know, the same to me, the same hypocrisy that you're pointing out that like they're lifting this rule, but at the same time, they're saying you have to wear masks on trains. You know, I would say the reverse when Trump was like patting himself on the back for being like, I got rid of all these migrants. I'm the only person who could do that. And then there's no other rules anywhere. And we're not allowed to have any other rules. Like, Equally to me, asinine. I think, I mean, I think there are a couple of things. One, I think that the idea that this was a public health measure early on, like in the first like five to six weeks, I totally think that is legitimate. Once the virus is going around everywhere in the U.S., it's not meaningfully being altered by additional people bringing the virus in. Now you can talk about, well, we have strains on our healthcare system. And I think those are kind of legitimate concerns that you can't kind of add people to a scenario where you already have strains on the healthcare system. But the idea that they're bringing in like, you know, proportionally more virus than is already spreading around within the United States. Like once the cat is out of the bag here, to me, it doesn't actually matter. And I, I, I believe that sort of with global travel as well, that quarantines, masks, and vaccinations are a much stronger policy than just trying to limit people's travel once the virus is in places that it hadn't been before. That's like a my just personal understanding of the issue. And I don't think that trying to, you know, or, or using this as a way to not deal with the immigration problem was effective, right? It's just kind of kicking the can down the road and also just like ethically and morally to, to me doesn't, is not any kind of a long-term solution. At some point we would have to admit to ourselves that this is not the way to go about things. Yeah. I mean, there, and then, and then of course, sort of the political ramifications, right? Like a, a Christian cinema. Yeah. Arizona has, you know, gets a big influx of uh, folks across the border from from uh, the you know the Mexico Texas border, 
what Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire is talking about. Like, I don't, I don't really know. I don't know who, like, you know, for, from, from her state's perspective, which happens to probably be a pretty anti uh, immigration sort of, I, I'm like, I think she knows that that plays well in her state. It's sort of like a live free or die, but we're American and they're not. Um, but like, they don't, they don't have a huge issue. And I think for me, the biggest thing about immigration at a time like this in terms of like how we're thinking about our crises, right? So we have very low unemployment, but we also continually see businesses unable to staff. And a lot of these are low wage, low skill jobs, you know, restaurant, I don't know, I'm not trying to disparage, but like, you know, restaurant workers and um, Uber drivers and things like that, we've all come become accustomed to having, this is the kind of labor pool that fills that. And you want to talk about like inflation, those kind of pressures on wages, like adding to the labor force has a consequence of bringing down wages because there are just more people available to do those jobs. Now, these are, <clears throat> I'm not also advocating that we just like open up the border uh, for, for free entry, but the United States is the richest country in the world. We have currently the fifth highest population of, of all countries, but we are, I don't know, probably 160 on the list in terms of population density. Like we're a massive country. We actually have pretty good infrastructure in a lot of places. Like we can support population growth and if we can't come up with ways to, yeah, stem the stem kind of the tide of immigration, like, and we've talked about this sort of figuring out how other countries can support their own populations better, whether it's reducing crime or creating more economic opportunity, then, and you know, the alternative is to figure out how to accept more people and have them integrate into our country, and like that is you know, if we want to talk about sort of propagating American values, that's like not a bad way to do that either. So yeah, in terms of like, what's happening, and is it as bad as it has ever been? Is there like a lot of hypocrisy? I think those are all true statements. Do I think it's like this monumental crisis? I just, I don't, I don't know that it is to me. The crisis, I think, as you said, is with the system like the system is broken and even people and of course there's huge undertones or overtones of like racism and how a lot of people on the right have treated the migrants coming over from from the over the mexican border but there is a lot of i think legitimate concern amongst conservatives or moderate democrats that that the that there's there's kind of like this isn't these aren't anti-immigration measures these are more like hey this is anti people just like coming over our border measures and people that are coming here without doing things quote unquote the right way and people who are coming over here these are maybe small very small populations but people who are smuggling children or potentially bringing communicable diseases or potentially bringing drugs but like when we that speaks more to the immigration system that we have that that's not working because as you said the united states population growth last year was 0.12 percent 
which is, as far as I know, a historic low, like in, in the history of the United States. And while we don't want to grow just to grow, as you noted, not only can we grow, but given like the aging US, United States population, we need to grow. And with, with white families continuing to like produce fewer and fewer births, we have like a, a, a decline, like fewer births of you know, Americans who are already here and now a, a declining immigration rate over the past few years, given the policies that Trump put in place and Biden continued. And it's uh, that portends negative things potentially, not only for our economy right now, but certainly down the road when we, we need young workers to to support our economy and, and these these entitlements that we that we want to take care of our older people that have worked their whole lives to get the, these entitlements. So, yeah, I, I, I think more it's, it's a system. I think you pointed this out well, and this is where, you know, cinema in particular, I think has been really good. She actually ran the Boston Marathon this week. Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I saw, I saw a picture like, Oh man, I wish I would have seen her out there. Um, but where she was kind of, her complaint is that, like there's no plan to fix this so I, like and so you're right that tyler 42 for the last year after it was probably necessary for a couple weeks couple months title 42 has just been a measure for cbp just to kick people out without having to deal with it but i think cinema and everyone else realizes that like look as soon as we lift title 42 now we're going to have to deal with hundreds of thousands of people that we're going to have to give asylum, like give asylum hearings to. And these are all people that haven't been able to come into the country and get these hearings over the last two years, right? And so like, just to think that like in a normal month, we're already dealing with influx of immigrants who legally are applying for asylum. Now we're going to have like a two-year backlog of those. And like Biden administration, what's your plan to deal with this? And yeah, I, I agree with like what you're saying with like Maggie Hassan or Manchin or Tester or whatever, but those are real concerns. This is why, like Beto O'Rourke, you know, last month past, who's running for uh, Texas governor, he's also come up against this because, like, those are the communities, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, who are going to have to, like, deal with these consequences here. And so they, I think, both whether it's Cinema or Mark Kelly, the other senator there, is like, all right, well, maybe I agree that Title 42 should be lifted, but you need to have a plan after that because otherwise, like, we're, we're really going to become overwhelmed here. Yeah. And, and I think that 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 particular point, like just the bottleneck at the border that like once you, you know, remove the stopper, all of a sudden it's like, you know, opening a floodgate is is certainly. Yeah. Like tactically, you need to have <laughs> a way to to deal with that. There's there's no doubt. And it's and I think and this is this feels like. And not not necessarily a flaw, but the shame is that the way that sort of the situation and potential solutions to the situation will be kind of tossed around like the, whatever the proverbial political football in, in this election year, it's like few people are going to be necessarily looking for the compromise or whatever the solution that we actually need for this problem they're just going to be looking for ways to, to grandstand and, you know, either we need to get rid of this now and whatever, or we need to put this in and double down and make sure that there's like a new border and it's between Mexico and whatever, like Panama or something. 
not great geography there, but okay. Uh, <laughs> That's horrible geography. You know what? You know what I was thinking though. Like just now, remember the Gang of Eight when it was like the four Republicans and four Democrats back in what it was maybe like early. 2012 2014 that like came up with like a fairly comprehensive immigration plan and then it just got shot down amongst like partisan politics it's like how far away are we from that like that seems like forever ago where you could get people that were like all right let's really tackle the root causes of this and try to reform our system now it's just like let's let's fool around with this pandemic era type like 80 year old law to like not deal with the problem and just kick people out kind of illegally yeah. I mean, I mean, and this is, I guess, one of those things too, like technically the, the way that we've run our primaries has been the way that we've run our primaries forever, but it really just feels like, and maybe it's, you know, with the ease of information and, and how we can kind of amplify, you know, what people are doing, but anybody who even dreams of talking to somebody on the on the other side of the aisle is now wide open, uh, you know, especially in Congress where the elections are every two years um, is now just like wide open for removal because now I have all the fodder I need that says that, you know, you're pro immigration or you're racist, you know, whatever it is. Now I can primary you from just from a further position. And that just makes it like impossible for you to, yeah, if 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 you think that your person being like your individual self needs to be there for for whatever the like the greater good, like I can't do anything if I'm on the outside and I can't be on the inside unless I don't do anything. So it's like what vicious like what are we doing? Well, it was interesting. Doug Jones had talked about that too, and he was like, I even tell people now, like my friends, like don't say bipartisanship because bipartisanship has become like a toxic word where everyone's like, look, he's going to work with the other side. Yeah. And so yeah. he's like, I always talk about talk about compromise, talk about like common ground. Like he was like, those words people can still be like, oh, okay, like oh, I like my senator to compromise. I just don't want her working working with those guys over there, you know. <laughs> uh, so I just I just looked this up briefly because I was remember the gang of eight bipartisan group of eight U.S. senators, four Democrats and four Republicans who wrote the Border Security, Economic Opportunity and Immigration Modernization Act of 2013, passed the Senate 6832. And the House just never acted on it and it expired at the end of Congress. Yeah, well, I mean, again, it also speaks to, you know, senators have six year terms and people's memories are short. So as soon as you get in as a Senator, you know, you kind of have two years to do whatever you want. Um, (laughs) The last four years, then you got to like toe the line until your reelection comes. But for congressmen, it's a different story with how, how quickly they have turnover and yeah. And, and how, how clear, like sort of the national conventions are constantly looking for, you know, areas and races that we can, that they can pick off. Um, yeah, it's a, yeah, it feels intractable. Go ahead. Yeah. Last thing on this is that the Biden administration has been acting, asking for more COVID relief funds for weeks now because they're out pretty much. And while, you know, fingers crossed, knock on wood, things are looking better right now. The reality is, is that with the variants out there, what is it like the BA2 variant out there right now or whatever, it's hard to even keep track of their names, but just we know that probably in 
if not the fall in the winter, like we're probably going to get another surge in cases. And that's just, you know, unfortunately the reality of, of, of a disease like this. Uh, but the Biden administration is kind of like, we've exhausted all of our funds. Like we need more funding for whether it's producing more tests or more masks or more ventilators or more whatever it is, right, that we need. And Congress hasn't been giving it to them. And right now it's it's being held up over this Title 42 thing where Republicans are pretty much like, if we're if we're going to give you this more money to fight this pandemic, well, then you need to be enforcing this pandemic on the border, like like those type same type of thing. So it's just like another issue where like immigration has now touched where the administration isn't getting the money they're asking for because of this. So it's, that's just another thing to to keep an eye on of like, will will they come to a compromise? Because obviously the administration feels like they need this money. You know, it's they're they're as usual stuck between, you know, no one's situations just getting pressure from everywhere. So just just one other thing I wanted to note there. Fair. All right. Uh, when we come back, I think we got just a couple parting thoughts um, on the continually evolving situation in Ukraine. So we didn't want to leave the episode without addressing the continuing war invasion atrocities that are happening in Ukraine. Um, this won't be particularly long conversation, I don't think, but didn't feel right to talk about like things that have been going on in the world without mentioning this. So the war has now stretched, again, I hesitate to almost call it a war. It's like the Russian invasion has now reached its 50th day this week. So it's been over seven weeks. Um, Russia just recently this week has launched a massive offensive all across the East, um, the Donbass region um, from, from the North, to the south, uh, and so it's 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 settled in. Unfortunately, uh, the the West, including the United States, continues to provide aid in terms of money and resources and and, and military equipment to Ukraine, um, which is helping Ukraine hang on to some of its major cities and, and effectively combat the Russians. Uh, just last week, the Ukrainian uh, military sank one of the major Russia warships in the Black Sea, which was a significant moment. Um, but Russia is continuing to come and, and come hard at the Ukrainians. Um, I think aside from the the offensive that just launched this week, probably the biggest thing over the last few weeks has been the atrocities that were discovered in the Ukrainian city of Bucha. I apologize if I'm not saying that right someone can certainly welcome to correct me but um as russian forces were pulling back from this city ukrainians and other international observers were able to re-enter the city and saw some like pretty horrific things um you know it's, it's hard to even get into them but there there were people uh with their hands tied behind their back there were people in uh, mass graves. There were reports of soldiers just going door to door and murdering people. There were signs of, of rape and torture, uh, really horrific things. And it prompted people to leaders to escalate their rhetoric around what the Russians are doing. Uh, you know, Biden has infamously throughout his whole career, but even in the, in the last few months, has been like speaking from the heart and going a little off script and 
when he was over in Europe, he infamously said that like Putin can't remain in power. And obviously the White House had to walk that all back. But he did come out just last week and say what the Russians are doing there is genocide. I don't think I'm in a position to say whether it is or it isn't. That's certainly a very strong word. I think war crimes at this point, it seems to be one that many people across the world are willing to say that the Russians are committing war crimes in, in the Ukraine, which it's, it, it's, I guess, continues to be a little bit stunning that it's happening in the world. I know maybe particularly stunning that it's happening in Europe, which is maybe a, a different conversation for a different time, but uh that like these atrocities that we read about in history books and the, the ones that I've seen are um, Sabrinka, which was uh, the Bosnian genocide of, I think it was like 8,000 Muslims in the, the war in the former Yugoslavia and the Bosnia and Herzegovina. Uh, and that was in the mid nineties and the My Lai massacre that the United States did in Vietnam. I think it was in 1968. And obviously, unfortunately there were, really almost too many to count in World War II, both by Germans and Soviets and um, in different actions there. So, yeah, I guess that's one of the things. It's, it's obviously difficult to talk about, but it's... I remember reading Night by Elie Wiesel, and he recounts when they were, like, being marched down the street. He was like, this feels like a scene out of a history book. And obviously, I'm not I'm very far away from feeling any consequences of this, but when you like read about some of these things or see some of these things, you're just like, man, this feels like all of the worst things that I ever read about that are, it's happening right now in the world. Yeah, it is. It's no doubt. um, Shocking. And like, I don't know if absurd is the right word, but it just, it feels unreal. Um, and I guess, you know, I like that what's happening when civilians are dying is, is not really up for debate. It's just it's a it's a horrible, horrible thing. The I think the question becomes. Can we hold somebody accountable? Like, is are we able to hold people accountable? And what is kind of the best like avenue for us to do that? Right. A lot of people have been saying the U.S. can sort of provide a lot of evidence of these war crimes and we should have Vladimir Putin sort of tried on on the war crimes. Um, and I think this is <laughs> this is where it gets tricky for us. And you mentioned my lie, but you don't actually have to go that far back um, to find other evidence of war crimes perpetrated by Americans in in very recent past. And this and. And it's not a, well, if, if, you know, it doesn't sort of negate what's happening right now, right? It doesn't like say, well, okay, you know, somebody else did it. So, so they can do it too. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that in, in any way, these two things are right, but I am, I, I think what's difficult when Biden does say things like, you know, this is a genocide and we need to remove Putin, you know, we, in our in the last like 200 years, right? The Nuremberg trials are maybe the only thing that we have to really holding some peoples accountable after a large scale war. Uh, Apart from that, 
we don't really have any system or, you know, we've never really done anything to hold anybody accountable after a war um, for what happened during the war. And it's very <clears throat> difficult. Um, it's just very difficult to do that when we don't want to be submit to those same rules. And it's tough because there are only like a handful of countries that, you know, really can do the things that the U S does or what Russia is doing right now um, without sort of fear of retaliation because of sort of the nuclear fleet or just the size of their uh, armed forces. Um, that like, I, I think in a vacuum, we can see what's happening and we can say this is a war crime, but in the world that we live in where we don't actually hold people accountable for these types of things ourselves or others, like how, like, I don't, I don't know how we can justifiably do anything about that, uh, do anything about what's going on from like a, a criminal sort of proceeding. I mean, you know, we talked about, the Trump pardons in 2019 and in 2020, like the number of soldiers that were basically accused by their own other soldiers of committing war crimes. And we basically said, oh, well, like, you know, we're not going to hold them accountable. So if we don't hold ourselves accountable, how can we hold other people accountable? Like it can't be rules for thee and not for me. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. If we think that these are moral and right, and, and I, and I, and I think that they are, we have to sort of submit to an international authority, but it's not something that we want to do, but how are you going to ask somebody else to do that if you don't want to do it yourself? That I think that's fundamentally, it's just a, it's a, it's a problem or like a corner that we backed ourselves into that, I think it's just very hard to make that justification that somebody else has to play by a certain set of rules that, that don't apply to us. And maybe we should say, we're, you know, we're the biggest, we're the baddest, you know, the rules for us are different. And I think from that standpoint, okay, but then you can't make the same sort of moral argument. I think it's just difficult. Sure. Um, I don't know what the answer is because I, I mean, what's happening is horrific and I want, and, and I hope that it stops and I hope that it stops quickly, but it's just the, like there, it unfortunately just reeks of hypocrisy when we run around like making these moral claims when we're unwilling to, to hold ourselves accountable, even when we have the opportunity, even when we're like, it's not like going to the top, right? Like early days of Iraq and, Afghanistan, President Bush and Cheney were in support of torture, which is a war crime under the G Geneva Convention, right? But, the, you know, oh well, <laughs> right? So it was there, you know, they're not going to play by the rules. And, and, and of course, there's always that, like, the idea of, well, they're using civilians as human shields, right? Like, we've heard these arguments in the reverse, and you can rest assured that that's what Russia is saying the truth of the matter, unfortunately, is also going to be a little bit, a little, a little bit tinged in there as well. And I'm not saying these things are not happening, but we have to understand how they're being reported also impacts how we digest the information. Um, so it's, yeah, 
I mean, the bottom line is this is horrible. What we can do about it is trickier because of, you know, how we've done these things in the past. Yeah, I think both of us have emphasized that we feel like there's more of a need to try to strengthen our international organizations. And so most people are probably aware the International Criminal Court would be the one to investigate war crimes. This was a court that was created back in 2002. And like that's that's really their job. And they've they've investigated war crimes across the globe in Africa, South America. Uh, the problem is, Ricky, as, as you noted, the United States is not a member of the International Criminal Court. Uh, and neither nor, is Russia. Nor <laughs> is Russia. But so I think this is significant is in when the United States, like when the International Criminal Court was first being voted on by the international community, seven countries voted against it. China, Iraq, Israel, Libya, Qatar, Yemen, and the United States. And so we've talked about this on other occasions of like, who are you kind of keeping company with? Like that famous red, like if you want to see who you are, look at your friends, like type type thing. Like that's, that's, those are the countries that we were with. And so I know Ilhan Omar just wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post just this week being like, if the United States is serious about trying to hold Russia accountable for their crimes, and we should be, then we also need to join the International Criminal Court. And this has been a long, while the United States has consistently, whether it was under Clinton or Bush or Obama, been against joining the International Criminal Court because there are like there are fears that it infringes on United States sovereignty. That really hardened under the Trump administration when the ICC was trying to potentially investigate war crimes the United States had committed in Iraq and Afghanistan. And Trump, Trump administration put sanctions on all of the people that were trying to investigate the United States, right? And so, like it, like you said, it's, it's very hard to now be like, all right, well, four years later, R- Russia is doing these things. Let, let's Putin's a war crime. Like he should be tried for genocide when, when you know, it's it's maybe not equivalent, but doesn't you know? I, I think. Omar's point, and I have rarely agreed with her, but I will here, is that like if, and I agree with you, if we are going to be serious about holding other people accountable, then we need to submit to those same authorities that we purport to submit other people to. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. I mean, I guess at the end of the day, it's, it is it is very disheartening. And I think the the idea that, I don't know, Sometimes it feels like all all war is a crime. There's really no good way to to, to do it. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I think for our perspective, we'll just try to keep you know the, the Ukrainian people in our thoughts and just continue to to hope and wish the best for them and hope for an end to the conflict as yeah. as soon as possible. Yeah, no doubt. All right, man. Well, on that unfortunately sobering somber note, we'll. Uh, We'll call it this week. Good to see you. It was good. To, it was good to talk to you again. And we, you know, I, I needed this <laughs> for sure. See you, bud. Love you. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue. Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads Running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away Some 
morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's hands Folks of different minds Because even though we did not share The pains we share That American idea Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten The values sometimes being wrong Some mornings you away Some morning let your ego bruise But what I wouldn't give for the Hope I used to find in a, a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share like American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause though Main Street may not sell Full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree Some days you win Some days you leave your ego through But what I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find And chase the lion's head Folks with different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz What I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks with different minds Because though we did not Share opinions we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.